Hello, my name is Dotun Holo Poroku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Nena Nkongo. Nena is a principal at Igame, a growth capital investment firm that Bartek enables businesses in Africa. Their portfolio companies include Get Smarter, an online education company based in Cape Town and London that was acquired by 2U in 2017 for over $100 million. In this episode, we talked about how the African venture ecosystem is differentiated from the rest of the world in terms of startup valuation, capital allocation, returns, expectations, and time timelines for exit. This interview was recorded just around the time most of the world was shutting down due to COVID-19. We discussed how this is creating both opportunities and challenges for startups in Africa. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So Nina, welcome to Building the Future. Welcome, Dotun. I'm really glad to be here. Great. It's exciting, actually, to, to have you around as well. Before we dive into that, I just wanted to talk about yourself and how you got into the world of venture capital. Sure, not a problem. I got into the world of, I think it's Harry Stebbings calls it, the wonderful world of VC. From first financial side, I started my career at a large global investment bank, Morgan Stanley, working in M&A. And so not only do you sort of learn work hygiene in your early career, hmm. but you learn financial modeling, analysis of markets how to put together and sort of the nuts and bolts of, of doing transactions. And I was lucky enough to get it in, in a global context because I did some of that work in New York and then all across non-Japan Asia. So from Korea to Indonesia, some Hong Kong and China work. So I had all of that experience, which clearly that sort of groundwork laid the foundation for some of the work that I do today. So I spent many years as an investment banker, then on the investing side at at big global investment banks, and then made my way to smaller investing organizations like Nubuki Investments, and then did some time on the entrepreneurial side of things, working for Tisalat in Nigeria, and then solo in Nigeria, but largely through the, the finance end of things and sort of narrowing my focus. So I am a Nigerian and American and sort of have a, a global perspective on the impact of technology in our markets. And it's been nothing short of revolutionary. And so I feel privileged to be able to help you know entrepreneurs accelerate the growth of their businesses across the continent, because I can't think of a single business or, or facet of life that hasn't been improved by the technology. Since you, you have a a, a very interesting background. A lot of investors that I, I know, some do have like maybe entrepreneurial background and there's a lot of value in having a previous entrepreneurial background before you become an investor. Some are maybe like corporate and, and some maybe have like technical investment experience, but you seem to have combined two things, which is corporate experience, working at the end of a high growth tech company in Africa, but also having this technical finance experience. I, I wanted to just talk about how that is helping you now in, in what you're doing, especially working with early stage high growth business across the continent. I, th- I think you're correct in that my mix of experience informs sort of how I do my job and sort of how I see the world. And so clearly the the financial skills and, and sort of the, the discipline and process that I learned in M&A sort of helps inform some of how I do my job today. In terms of working for companies, both large and small, that gives me empathy, sort of, you know, the larger company has given me sort of experience in a sector and a market and an understanding of sort of best practice processes of well-run businesses, sort of it gives you the end goal. And while working for early stage high growth 
um, scaling businesses. It gives me direct empathy with the sort of situations that my founders find themselves in on day one. Sort of, It's like I, I have the current experience and then sort of <laughs> vision of where their end goal is. I want to maybe ask you a question around your journey from actually working in different parts of the world and studying in the U.S. and working in, in, in a finance world in the U.S. and also in, in Asia or Southeast Asia. And then what led you to come back to Africa and start working with early stage companies in Africa? And the reason why I wanted to also talk about that is there has been a lot of movement maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago with the Africa Rising story. And I wanted to know whether that informed your movement or you've had a lot of interest in helping entrepreneurs in Africa. Well, that's a lot. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, I was born in the U.S. to, you know, parents of the brain generation. So my parents met stateside. Hmm. We, you know, were largely raised here except for a short stint where we tried to go home. Hmm. And, you know, when people ask me why I do what I do, it's that we were unsuccessful as a young family uh, at home. And we, after our 18 months, moved back to the States. And so I'm U.S. educated for my secondary school and university, went to Princeton, and I, I started work in New York and was quickly shipped off to Asia. I always thought that I was going to work in the continent, but I think our experience of Africa back in those days was that it was it was challenged. You know, the lack of infrastructure made life fairly difficult. And so as technology, whether it was Mo Ibrahim's advent of or widespread adoption of prepaid cell phones, you know, as I started to see Africa change for the better with the use and spread of, of the mobile platform of technologies, I wanted to be a part of it. And so I think often, you know, was it a linear progression to sort of where I am? No. And I think that's something I often like to remind, you know, younger people behind me is that Sometimes you sort of do an experience and you, you make the most of it and you try and make it as successful as you can, but it may not seem like, oh, that's the next step. And I think, you know, even thinking about maybe your experience into venture, it's not always sort of a direct line. It's that you're, you're picking up valuable skills and experiences yeah. that will help you when you land that that role or position, but may not seem like it's a, a, you know, the direct or, you know, prerequisite for it. So that's kind of one step or sort of how I ended up, you know, there and sort of after sort of doing some work in MA some work on the investing side. Again, for a big bank, I decided that was sort of when I made the switch to say I was going to focus on Africa. I did some work for Kenyan uh, family concern. I went to back to business school. I helped start a fund, an Africa-focused fund. So I came into the earlier stage world through TMT, so technology, uh, telecoms, media, and technology, first from the investing side, then working for a large corporate, again, in a, in a capital allocation role. And then an early stage business. And so along the way, you could say that, that you know, I had experience of, of doing deals, of evaluating industries, of making investments, and then of, of working, making investments on behalf of, of corporates effectively, both large and small, and really growing businesses across Africa. And that's sort of how I ended up where I ended up in at Degame Digital Growth Africa, where we look to back great founders by making investments in their businesses and, and really helping them them grow them. Yeah, that's really helpful, actually. And I, I want to go into the Gamia. But before we talk about the Gamia and the thesis, I want to actually explore your own personal African thesis. What's your view of investment in Africa and what is the thesis that is driving that view? I mean, I'm really lucky in that, you know, as part of the founding team, you know, the, the Gamia view and, and my personal views are closely aligned, if not the same. You know, I believe that I can't think of an area, again, an aspect of life that hasn't been changed changed by technology. And so I would like to see technology applied to Africa in as many areas of life as possible for its own benefit, for the benefit of its own people. I think that 
the innovation, it, it helps address some, not all, of the issues around market failure that plagued Africa. It can enhance or build infrastructure. So it's, it's infrastructure enabling. And it, it leads to greater efficiencies, whether it's supply and distribution, whether it's in reduced cost. You know, to me, that's the African innovation thesis. So each firm has their own specific slice on it. We can back it in different ways. But when you look at it, when I look at it at a macro macro level, that's that's what I see. And, you know, how other funds back it and, and who they back and why, that's the devil's in the details. But I think largely everyone's in agreement about those kind of high level goals and results. And so that even in this time of, of, of COVID-19, I think those premises are, are still intact because if, you, if you're attacking real problems in a, in a way that focused on, on growth, profitable growth, you know, we're still open for business. I think this probably will help us to dive into some of the stuff I really want to explore with you, which is, again, and we discussed a bit, a bit of this before we went live, the, the, the post-COVID world, and that, that's how we're going to be defining our time now going forward. And be- the pre-COVID world, before COVID, a lot of there are a lot of views in African technology or even investment ecosystem that yes, technology has that potential to actually affect everything in Africa, and you can actually base your thesis on that. Whether it is commerce, logistics, health, and everything, and you can say, okay, I'm going to be investing in companies that will be using technology to address a lot of problems. But then there is also the other side. The, the conundrum is most Africans are still not online. The internet penetration in Africa is still small. It's very expensive. Data is. Very very expensive for a lot of Africans. Yes, there was a lot of mobile phone penetration, but smartphone penetration is smaller. But it seems that is up in the air now with COVID. <laughs> that, that few things that would change that. So I just want to get your view on the. I, I think you, you know, I understand where you're going here, and and sort of I, I think that many of the the points that you've brought up certainly apply to people who were looking to build or fund high growth B2C businesses, right? You know, let's think of traditional e-commerce or sort of uh, Western-based e-commerce models, et cetera, et cetera. But the role and impact of technology is broader than that. Even though the narrative may have focused on those types of businesses, the the fact is, is that the digitization of industries, you know, makes them more efficient. And, And that you know, doesn't require, let's say, as much an internet or it requires a different level of internet penetration. And, and may, some of the issues you brought up may be less relevant in, in that kind of a business model. And so I think what this crisis is likely to do is to encourage people to, to understand that there's more than one narrative. I, I think that the, the former got a lot of the, the attention, right? But the latter probably will get more attention in a, in a post-COVID world. So businesses that, again, are focused on real problems, but, but I'm also going to say, there may be more opportunities now. Yeah. If, if people are going out less and there's less mobility, and I think that's really the opportunity in COVID, really, like if I'm backing up a little bit, is consumer behaviors and patterns may have to change so that perhaps the distrust or lack of preference that Africans showed prior to, for example, e-commerce may have to change now yeah. because people aren't going out. Yeah. You know, like this might be the trigger for a behavior change that could make certain business models more successful. Yeah, I understand that. I understand the behavior change that might actually uh, increase the adoption of, or, or the success of some of the business models that people have neglected in the past. But is it just only that or is there the need as well for, and I know this is multifactorial, for infrastructures to make that work? So, for example, you talk about e-commerce, so many things that have not made it work. Uh, there are, yeah, one of it is behavioral change. People still want to use cash. People still want, people only trust what they see. But it's also the infrastructural problem like logistics, payment, and, and general things that make e-commerce work. Uh, but probably maybe COVID might bring all of that to the fore and create a wave. But I wonder whether there is also the institutional role that needs to be played there. There always is. I, I think sometimes 
sometimes the, it getting lost in the narrative and the excitement of, of tech-enabled investment in, in sort of, you, you mentioned sort of rising Africa before we started recording, is that technology investment does not, at least in my view, replace the need for strong governments and government investment in institutions. So it doesn't eliminate the need for state infrastructure investment. I think that technology can enhance legacy investments. It can, in some places, create new ways of delivering services to people. So grid-based solutions, off-grid-based solutions to delivering power. But it it doesn't sort of preclude that. But I I think when you bring up e-commerce and say that, you know, most e-commerce businesses are are founded with the premise that there's a network of other infrastructure enabling businesses present. But that's precisely why the businesses that that started in this prior vintage found the unit economics challenging. It's because Mm. that other infrastructure layer wasn't there. But what it created also was an opportunity for other entrepreneurs to create businesses that provide some of that infrastructure. I, I think the challenge in in Africa, at least that, that I see it as a VC, is that you know when you think about the the models and the projections to scale the business, you assume, or many from the outside of Africa assume that that infrastructure is there and the business would be able to scale, you know, one, two, three, without realizing that actually the the rate of scaling will be slower. It will be operationally more challenging, and therefore the valuation and the pricing need to be slower because it's not going to scale at the same rate. And so that's the follow through. So it's not that you can't build it, but that it will be more difficult to build it at the same rate. And and people without knowledge of the context may miss that and say, okay, these things go at X times revenue. This thing is going to grow like this. And then suddenly it doesn't. It doesn't mean that the model is terrible or bad, but it means that it may not work within the context that you're more used to seeing. And that's really true. And it's one of those things that we actually kind of review that we have at Novastar as well about that growth rate of a lot of African businesses might not be, you cannot compare to to, to, to what you're used to in a classic venture style business in North America or, or in Europe. And, and therefore, it should inform the way you allocate capital to those businesses because some of them might have to be vertically integrated because the partnership they needed does not exist. And the question to me to you is this, knowing that you, you're part of a founding team of, of an investment fund, and you, we, we know the difficulties and then the extra difficulties it is to raise a fund in Africa. How do you then as, as an investor, allocate capital effectively. And, and also thinking about your own uh, returns and stuff to a company that you know might take a long time for them to get to that place where they validate their model and they might need more capital than necessary to actually get to that growth stage where it's interesting for other people. And how do you then formulate your exit hypothesis considering that length of time and, and capital that might be required? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it's implicit in what I said before. So, I mean, that's why price and valuation is really important because, you know, if you get in at the wrong price, you know, that's that's where you start to get into trouble because you'll never get out with the kind of returns you need to make your limited partners, your our clients, mm. happy. You know, I, I think, yeah, it, it informs all of those things. But it also means that we, you know, that's part of the lens of, investing is to think about the scenarios. I I think exit planning clearly has to be a a part of your investment thesis. I, I think what we've seen is that unless you're a super early stage, whereby you might count on secondary market sales to sort of um, provide you with some exits for your successful companies, I, I think it's hard. And even then, I think it's hard. I think a company has to be a real hit for later stage investors to want to take secondary versus primary. So my view is that, you know, we're in it for the for the long haul. And so either people are, are distributing because they're profitable, but I think that it also reflects a, a real not every business is, is sort of suited to, for venture capital. Yeah. You know, there there are great 
or you know very good businesses that can sort of take in money at seed and maybe can can become profitable and and that kind of business if you sort of are profitable and growing you could create a good exit out of that because that asset will have value whereas if you take more money you know you then sort of create a need for a certain type of, of growth because that's what the investor I still want to go back to that capital allocation question there. I just want to explore that a little bit more uh, practically to how that works so you, uh, let me give an example let's say you have an e-commerce business in Europe and an e-commerce business in Africa and, and the same stage kind of profile the founders the same but different territories, different different dynamics. And how would you probably allocate capital in this hypothetical scenario? Would you put more money in the African business knowing that it's going to take a long time for them to validate? And, and how would you price that that's against the one in Europe that has a lot of partnership that they can leverage on. So, Dr. I'm going to give a little bit of a dodge. My <laughs> mandate is for African businesses. So I don't have to worry about allocating to Europe. My my investors would be very angry with me if yeah. I was investing in a European if a European e-commerce yeah, yeah. company because Europe's not part of my, my mandate. No, now, just and using that as a comparison. <laughs> I think the reality is, is that while looking at – so people look at comparable. Yes. But I think this is, again, where context comes into play. Is mm-hmm. that It's great for me to understand where European businesses go. And, and definitely this is a, an approach that well-informed founders of global high-growth businesses have. They'll say, well, my comp in Silicon Valley got X multiple for their business. And I'll say that's great, but your business isn't in Silicon Valley, <laughs> right? Your business yeah. is in Kampala or Lagos or yeah. – wherever it is, Accra. And and the dynamics of you fundamentally building and scaling your business in this market is different than you doing so in the other. And the risks, the attendant risks for you doing so are different. I think, you know, dollar for dollar, African businesses have been focused on profit more than their Western or more developed market peers because the investment ecosystem has been thinner. There are fewer African investors than there are let's say, Silicon Valley ones. We tend to have much less money in our ecosystems. And also, there haven't been very many cases where we've seen businesses that are VC funded through the end of the cycle. True. So that the, you know, the money might be there through a certain point, but very few businesses have been able to be completely growth funded. And yeah. so that also changes. So I, so I think that the answer is, is that the multiples are different because the context is different. True. And, that, and that's the reality. So it's not about which is better but it's just that they're different and if you don't adapt your strategy then you'll you won't be a good investor right because yes. that european business has has different exit opportunities and everything is different about it it might be in the same business nominally in terms of e-commerce but how they go about building their business should be different yes i totally agree with you on that and actually one can extend that into different layers of, of the ecosystem both from the founders perspective which you actually mentioned the expectation of the founders and entrepreneurs about how they build the business or even how they ideate it and, and the kind of capital they require it should be different and and, and, and avoid that comparables and the same to VCs and also to the LPs as well who are locating money into Africa the, the expectations and, and it should be totally different and that, that leads me to talk about COVID and, and I just want to again I'll, I'll ask a very broad question here about what do you think what has totally changed now both from investment point of view and and also business or, or startups and, and and i know we can talk a lot about life generally but i just want to focus our attention on things that you think might, might actually have to change i mean we might not have the answer to this but how we can view investment and startup ideating operations going forward so i think as, as we were saying before you know until there is a widely available vaccine movement is going to be limited with national lockdowns and I think, you know, some some social distancing or sort of maintaining of the social distancing. I think that, you know, as a result of that, 
many of us in especially the startup and innovation ecosystems are going to have to, with more, with an increased frequency, make decisions without the online component. So founders and investors, investors and limited partners, even teams that are going to either rely even more heavily on, on remote. I think that's the, the first higher order impact. You know, does this and will this translate uh, across Africa? I think, you know, as of today, today's April 5th, we're not sure how the disease, you know, the public health crisis will evolve in Africa, right? There are some indications that maybe it, it will not uh, be as acute, right? Warmer climate, young populations, some experience of pandemics. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, the real poverty and lack of development that, that's present across Africa may also exacerbate the crisis as sort of, you know, challenged urban living conditions, you know, economic survival versus social distancing, and, and our African governments, you know, from, from public health infrastructure yeah. and also potentially, you know, when you think of it, lower oil prices may have less financial flexibility yeah. to sort of prop up financial systems and ensure business survival. And, 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 you know, they may have limited flexibility in sort of doing that because of also the, the devaluations, right, that we're going to see as, as a function of this global supply and demand instability. So yeah. this week, I, I participate, I'm, I'm a Kaufman fellow and participate in the program and we had some webinars and and sort of a group virtual meeting this past week where we, we talked a lot about, you know, how do we think about coming out of this and sort of what opportunities there could be. I think there's an acknowledgement that we're trying to extend runway for a lot of portfolio companies. I think a lot of everyone is looking to conserve cash. I think that in terms of us looking forward, people are clearly looking at healthcare solutions and things that whether it's, you know, life sciences, people who are looking to sort of do vaccine development or businesses that can accelerate or change that, enhance that development process. You know, clearly people talk about remote, anything that can sort of help people, whether it's do business or, or do quote unquote life more remote education, et cetera, et cetera, may come out. But this is something that, you know, I'm thinking through right now. I think right now I'm focused on process things. So sort of how we make decisions, what changes in that. Because I think once you have a framework for how you're going to do business, there will be opportunities. I think a lot of people talk about how some of the hard pivots that businesses did, like JD.com, Alibaba, were founded in the 2008, you know, 2009 crisis. So, you know, this is, is different because it's sort of global. It's both supply and demand. But, and it's sort of really violent. But, it, but it's also the same in that there always are opportunities out of a crisis. And yeah. so I'm wanting or hoping that we in Africa can do the same. I, I actually see so much ingenuity across Africa, candidly. I don't think Africa has ever really lacked for ideas. So when I look at it and people say, oh, what do you think about the pipeline? My sort of challenge is that I see less great execution rather than a lack of ideas. Do you know what I mean? The ideation yeah. is there. Yeah. Many people have many different solutions to solve the problems in Africa. But what I don't always see is sort of people executing well to sort of deliver solutions that, that work at scale. And I encourage people to continue to do so. So it's, it's not a problem. It's that more people need to to be confident and able to take the risks to to do so, who can do so. There is the liquidity of ideas and just walk around Lagos and just meet an average entrepreneur. They are fantastic idea. And you're right, it starts execution and, and that is lacking in most cases. And, and there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. One is the education system that enable people to be able to think creatively and pay attention to details and, and execute well. It's not there. Plus the fact that for a long time, and maybe we started seeing a shift in the last two or three years now, for a long time, tech startup or startup generally is 
or even in entrepreneurship generally, uh, it's not done by the smartest amongst us. The smartest amongst us are encouraged to become doctors, lawyers, and and, and probably maybe do MBA and work, work for, oil for, and work for oil companies and work for other people, work for right? Oil, work for oil companies and banks. Yeah, and banks. Um, and, that, and now, maybe we started seeing a well, bit of shift in that. I think yes and no. You know, definitely there's been an increased awareness of entrepreneurship as a legitimate path. But I also yeah. think that some of the mythology around Silicon Valley is that everybody who start, does start the startup is is sort of a you know a, a twenty two year old student in their dorm room. Mm. When the reality is, most successful startups are and startup founders are in their forties. Yes, most of them have you know corporate experience, but it's really business building experience. Yes, you know, and and sort of some expertise that allows them to sort of identify a problem, then subsequently marshal the resources. Right, my you know, sort of assessment of what you do as sort of founder of a startup is that your job is to basically, you know, to say it, make a dollar out of 15 cents. You have 15 cents of resources and your Mm -hmm. job is to squeeze a dollar of value from it. Yes. Whether it's team, suppliers, capital, and that's how you build something that is in part greater than the inputs. Somebody actually once tweeted about one of the best things you could do as a founder is for you to have worked somewhere else, work in an agro business or work in a corporate to some extent and understand the rigor of execution because that will help you a lot when you found your business. And and, and you actually mentioned that data shows that most of the successful companies are now founded by 21-year-old hoodie-wearing guys that started from their garage. They started by maybe 30, 40-year-old guys who have experience and they have spotted a gap in the market and they, they use their experience to actually uh, execute. But I also don't want to discourage 21-year-olds who yeah. think they have a great idea from starting something. Yeah. So my point is that the idea can come from anywhere. You know, we, we have some great young founders in our portfolio. I think the idea is just that the execution matters. So it's the idea is insufficient. And so something that when I see early founders, sometimes I'll go to a conference or something and I'll say, I'll, I'll talk to someone, and I'm sure you've seen this now that you've joined the, the VC side of things, is that you'll go to a conference and afterwards there'll be lots of people after you've spoken on the panel who are looking to speak to you. And some will say, I have this great idea. I have you know little, uh, little to no traction or proof of concept. I'm, and they're waiting for somebody to fund them to start. And you contrast that with somebody who says, I have this great idea. I, I don't know, put up a test website. I did whatever. And I've already found 10 people, a million people, something sort of material that are willing to sign up for the solution, are on the trial, are using the, you know, the beta version or something. And it's sort of that inclination or that focus on, on sort of executing and sort of proof rather than ideation is sort yeah. of what investors are looking for. And, and, and there are maybe some investors that actually, and it's a place for that as well, for investors that fund just ideas and smart people like we see in the UK where it's the much less of that in Africa. We see much less of the pre-revenue, you know, money, at least institutional money in Africa. True. And that's something that, that founders complain about. But I think that's also part of the fact that just, you know, we were looking at a stat and something, I think it was in the Partech book, but it's in a few places that less than 1% of institutional assets go to Africa in general. So that, you know, our, our capital is not super early, super risky. The capital is is focused on more proven business models, business ideas. I have three more questions for you before we round off. One is going to be a tricky one, which is let's play the futuristic game here where you're imagining the future. And if you if you can see through in next year, assuming all of us survive this, uh, what sort of business do you see being founded that, that could be successful in the next one year post-COVID world in Africa? I do think that many of the education businesses that have been recently founded are going to see renewed effort focus, especially with children being home. I think, you know, Africans, you know, my 
parents came to the U.S. to study, they always, you know, made sure that that education was a top priority for for them, for us. So I think that businesses that address that are going to see have a real opportunity here to adapt their models to include an increased amount of remote. And everyone is going to choose to do that differently. And I think that is going to be something that I would look to aggressively look to try and understand how people differentiate those models and sort of take, uh, I think there can be some opportunity there. I'm not a healthcare person. I am sure there are people that are working to innovate in a healthcare space, I, you know, something beyond sort of just telemedicine, which I know that telemedicine is, is much more popular. I, I got a stat that, you know, Stanford used to see uh, a thousand people uh, a month in February. And then sort of the first two weeks in March, they saw, I think, something like 3000 people a day. So, wow. you know, yeah, I, I think beyond that, there are companies that are working to innovate within, you know, whether it's diagnostics, whether it is, you know, vaccine and immunology. I, I, I'm not sure, honestly, but I'm, I guess I, I'm going to, you know, do the post-COVID world in two, two, two bunches, right? One is pre-vaccine and one is post-vaccine, right? Pre-vaccine is, is going to be different than, than a post-vaccine world. I guess those are the things I'm, I'm looking at. But I think, you know, and again, e-commerce may change. And I guess it's not necessarily sort of what we're calling a straight e-commerce shot, but more, you know, what are the businesses that could support increased remote purchase of, of goods and services? Like that is sort of how I, the lens through which I would be looking for this. Yeah. Or businesses that reduces the need for human to human connection to anybody transaction. Actually, it is super smart to actually look at the pre-versing world and post-versing world and, and what sort of businesses that will be relevant there. And in post-versing world, what sort of businesses that will be relevant there? I agree that there will be acceleration of digitization of transaction of businesses uh, where money fintech or, or and people put my love attention to right, help but, as it, well. but it's just like fintech like look clearly payments let's even one area of fintech is payments mm-hmm. right and yeah. payments has received the, the lion's share of, of the funding and a lot of attention in, in, the, in the recent past in uh, across africa but, but that's still while volumes are likely going to be lower yeah. especially when you think about v, b2c and b2b given the 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 recession, you know, are there innovations around, you know, clearly we're expecting contactless to be important, but maybe businesses that focus on sort of enabling micro merchants as more people stay at home, enabling micro merchants to do more business might be more relevant or more important in this post COVID world. So I I think it's that within broad sectors, there are going to be applications or, or subsectors that are, you know, have a higher probability of being successful or are more suitable to the environment and context. And that's what people are going to be looking for. I think a lot of us initially right now are focused on trying to understand the impact of COVID on your existing portfolio investments, right? Because no amount of scenario planning, you know, you don't think that businesses are, are going to have 100% less revenues, right? You know, in a scenario, <laughs> there are, right? And there are yeah. businesses that revenues went to, to almost nothing, right? That's tough. And all this stuff have to stay at home where everybody had to stop working and that's like yeah. massively off. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think that the thing is that when everyone's like, great, you work from home, it's a luxury. But even, look, I look at Legos, you, you know, work from home at the internet, even internet access, because the power isn't on all the time, is not something that's realistic to say, oh, great, we're just going to start working from home. What do people do who don't have power at the state? Or even privacy, because they live in a shared apartment where they cannot talk about things that are private to the business and confidentiality. Is you're out you're even at the phone call level. I'm just even saying <laughs> just the no basic power. infrastructure. There's yeah. no lights now. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, no lights yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> There's no Netflix during the day, right? I, yeah. Even even my oldest state, right? It's like during the weekdays, you know, the, the power isn't on, right? So the, the power goes off at 10 and comes back on at 7 in the evening. How yes. are you working from home? And there'll be more pressure on the grid now that everybody's at home. So I think that this is something where, you know, context is important. Just as, you know, we don't 
say that the business in, in Europe is the same as the business in Africa, even the, the response to COVID and the adaptations that, that government societies can make are, are going to be different for, for us yeah. and our countrymen, so to speak. You and I can continue talking about it. I actually find a lot of conversation uh, super interesting and, and always coming out of it with more knowledge and a lot of insight into so many things. I'm going to end with two firearm questions uh, for you. Actually, they're very simple. Now, I used to have this four firearm question, but I've reduced it now. So the first one is, which book are you reading at the moment? You know, it's actually really funny because I'm actually clearing the decks for a new wave of reading. In this COVID crisis, I've realized one goal that I set for myself is I really want to try and read two books a month, not necessarily work-related. And I have just made a little bit of a mini list of stuff that I'm trying to read. So the first book that's on deck is a new book about the innovation ecosystem across the world. And I think Alex Lazarow wrote it. It's just come out, Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So I'm looking forward to reading that. That's on my deck for April. And then the other book that I am going to reread is Jane Austen, Emma. <laughs> so I, I, I have a range of things that I am looking to read, but those are the two things that are sort of on deck for April. That's good. Second question is, which view have you held before uh, you had to change your mind on recently and, and why? So I have been described and someone said, I have strong opinions, but loosely held. So that would describe pretty much any of my opinions. And I think that's a, a good way for an investor to be. But what have I recently changed my mind about? You know what? I, I think the response to the COVID-19 crisis, because I live in Lagos and, and sort of spend time in Dubai as well, I was very aware of the COVID crisis in early February. Um, in early February, late January, I was traveling and sort of before the crisis, I probably was on the road across Africa 70% of my time, but I was traveling with a mask and gloves. I was disinfecting plane seats, but I couldn't find masks at the February period. And I got someone to bring some to me. They were coming through Dubai in early Feb and I got someone to bring me N95 masks and I ordered them from Amazon. They were regularly available, weren't too expensive, and they brought me like 100 masks. I got five packs of you know, 20. But I thought that, you know, given that I wasn't going to China or Asia anytime soon, I would be okay, that I would still be able to move around Africa, US, UK without changing, really, you know, this idea of a national emergency. But so the first week in March, so let's call it March 1 through 5, I was in Nairobi, I started to hear more and more. And then let's call it March 7 through 10, I really then got a sense that this pandemic was spreading in a way, was going to spread throughout the, the Western world and the Middle East and then Africa. And I would need to understand where I wanted to be located for the next 60 days at a minimum or 90 days because there were going to be shelter in places and lockdowns like the ones I was seeing on TV in Wuhan. And so I came to the US. My parents are here, you know, right at that time. And I took it very seriously in that I've been sheltering in place. You know, I go to the grocery store once a week. They have a Peloton bike I use. But, but you know, I went from thinking that I would be able to continue my pattern of movement to very radically understanding before there was any scaled results in the U.S. that I would need to shelter in place and our family would need to shelter in place. And very early on, we locked down. So I have been locked down for over three weeks now. Yeah, and a half weeks. So, Yeah grocery store that's it i think that's a radical shift for everyone as well Every, everyone was looking like a spectator to what is happening in wuhan and china thinking oh they're gonna sort that out it's almost like ebola uh, far away and 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 suddenly it just swept through and, and the rate at which and it was overnight <laughs> you just were like boom 
And it was like, shoot, where do I got to be? And literally, you were making decisions. I think really movement, at least for me, this is about understanding your your risk. And I think that at least my thoughts right now, especially pre-vaccine, are that you're going to need to understand your status with respect to corona, so testing. And then even with that understanding, you're going to need to, movement isn't going to be rapid anymore. So that if you do go somewhere, national boundaries up, you're going to stay there for at least a month. My view is that you'll need to self-isolate, right? Yes. If you cross a national boundary for, for 14 days, and then, then you can go about your business wherever you are. Let's say you had two weeks worth of business. Yeah, that changes business travel totally. I mean, conferences yeah. and stuff, just, you just radically change it. You're not going for four <laughs> days for the conference and coming back. Except you want to do it in isolation. And but then you might as well not go yes. so that if you are going to go, right? So then if you are going to go, it, it really has to be special. Yes, I agree. Oh, thanks, Nena. This is, we are living in an interesting time. It's just beginning to fall the meaning of the Chinese course that made you never live in interesting times and, and this, this, this yeah, is the reality it is. of it. So just, thank you very much for, for yeah. having me here. Where can, where can uh, people that are listening to this find you before you go? They can find me, I guess, Twitter at Nena P. So N-N-E-N-A-P um, is one place they can find me. They can also, I think you can do, there's a contact on, so digameinvestment.com. There's a, a contact us link. That's another place to, to find me. LinkedIn is another place to, to find me. I'm open for, you know, for business. I'm open for new introductions and connections. Love to learn about what people are doing. You know, whether you're a startup founder, an investor, generally just a, a good counterpart across Africa and across the world, really, who, who has an interest in investing in Africa. Thank you very much, Nina. It's been a pleasure having you on this show. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you very much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go, I'd like you to subscribe for this show whatever you listen to your podcast and leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N or through the website drdotun.com. 